Go with me to Acts, which for those who don't know, it's go to the middle of the Bible and turn right. Go all the way down till you get to the four Jesus stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then voila, it pops up right after that. It's an extraordinary book written by a doctor, a Greek doctor, not by one of the 12 apostles. We're also trying something different tonight. You know, I feel like when these lights are on, it feels like a laboratory. So we'll see if it gets too dark. And uh, you know, when we have the mist coming off, the, no, we don't. When we have the smoke, no, we don't. Um, then we, we'll, we'll put the lights on. All right, the book of Acts and chapter one. We're in the beginning of a series that will take us through until the end of the year. And we'll just look at six chapters. I don't think we'll get through much more than that. But it's a compelling, exciting introduction to what Christianity can look like. Christianity is never boring. It shouldn't be. When we say yes to Jesus, it's an invitation to come and die, to surrender to the things that we hold dear, the things we want, the things that society demands of us, and to imbibe a story of adventure and curiosity and watching God do extraordinary things with us is highly, highly exciting. Last week, we just looked at the first 11 verses, the highlight of which is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And you shall receive power. Dunamis is the Greek word. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses or storytellers. You will be my storytellers in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is the vertebra around the story of the Acts of the Apostles. It is God giving power to a bunch of very ordinary guys and girls, and they take this X factor, this Christian X factor, and watch and see how they turn the world around. Uh, I forget where it was, Thessaloniki or somewhere, where it says that uh, those who are changing the world are amongst us. Those, those who are impacting the world are amongst us now. What an incredible story. Not those who are sexy and glamorous, not those who've got the coolest shows or the, you know, the newest sneakers, but those who are compelled by an X-factor Jesus story are amongst us. And we're gonna unpack that idea of God, His power, dunamis, and then we become storytellers in Jerusalem like Sam and Rachel are with homelessness. In Judea, surrounding area, similar culture. Sumeria, surrounding area, different culture and then the uttermost parts of the world. Next year, we're, having, we're part of a church planning movement called Genesis Collective. And next year, we will all meet from 15 countries. We will meet in Albania, which is a Muslim country, for three days, four days. And just, they have given us permission. It's a hotel on the beach, and they've given us permission to have worship there in the evenings in a Muslim country. It's a fabulous opportunity to encounter an adventurous God. So here we go. What is happening here in the story? There is a then in verse 12. Well, Jesus said he has to go. So he goes and he ascends, but the Holy Spirit has not yet come. Have you had that happen in your life where God says something is about to end, but the new has not yet started? There's an incredible vulnerability in the in-between. And this is an in-between moment. If I was God, I would have written the story that as Jesus went up, He would give the Holy Spirit five and the Holy Spirit would come down. And within a matter of seconds, minutes, Jesus goes up, the Holy Spirit comes down with power. But God leaves a window of days. Every vulnerability, I'm sure, uncertainty, anxiety, fear. Is this for real? I gave up everything, says Peter. I gave up my boats. I gave up my fishing. John says I left my pops. I left his business, my dad's business, the the business that was gonna become mine. I left that. Mary says, what about me? I gave birth to the guy. And then he goes and there's nothing else. Jesus' brothers say, no, 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 you guys haven't got it. We've left everything because our brother said he's the Messiah and now he's gone. Am I overstating? Maybe. But I'm trying to create a, Picture for us to understand the trauma that they felt. Let's read it together. 
Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. I've been there. It's pretty spectacular looking at Jerusalem across the valley. When they arrived, they went upstairs in the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together. They all joined together. They all joined together constantly in prayer. They all joined together in prayer. Along with a woman, that was a revolutionary thing. Think for a moment, the little we know of ancient Hebrew culture, the woman sat one side, the men sat another side. The woman could not have a rabbi. That was what men were allowed to have, a rabbi. So Jesus is breaking protocol here. He's inviting them to be all together, not girls, guys, to pray together. I can't believe you breaching the cultural tone of the day. You've got men and women praying together. What kind of religion is this? Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, kind of what we have here, I think. And he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment Judas received in brackets for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everything, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama, which means the field of blood. For Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let no one, uh, let there be no one to dwell in it. Interesting. And then the next verse says, may another take his place. It's like, take your pick, which verse do you want to use? Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living, the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these will become a witness, a storyteller with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one, of, uh, which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Jesus, help us. Great story, seems to be true. Testified to by those who told Luke what happened. Many stories. Well, interesting for 2,000 years ago, but does it have any relevance to me now, to us now? Is there something we can extract from the story that makes sense to me in my world with my challenges and obstacles? I pray that as Wendy and I speak tonight, somehow a fire will light inside of our chest to say, that's me, preacher man, preacher woman, that's me. You're talking about me in Jesus' name, his wonderful name, amen. We got four little subpoints. The passage, it kind of, divides itself quite simply. Verse 12 says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem, point one. Point two, they all joined together. I'm sure you picked up my emphasis. Uh, verse 14a, the third part of it is communal prayer. They were constantly in prayer. Wendy's gonna come up and talk about that for a little bit. And then I will land it, may another take his place in leadership. Why are these things important? Let me try and explain. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. Why? Why didn't they go to Galilee? That's where they lived. That's where they hung out. Why didn't they go fishing? Why didn't they go somewhere else? Why didn't they just go on an adventure? They were going to go to all these places. Why didn't they just set the tone for Damascus or something? I think the truth herein is that when God speaks, go back there. You know, so often in the in-between times, God spoken, now they seem Malachi to Matthew, Old Covenant to New Covenant, 500 years approximately. What do we do in the in-between times? Many become vulnerable, many doubt, many feel uncertain, full of anxiety. I don't know what God's on about. Welcome to the story. 
we will all have those moments. What did the um, apostles do? They returned to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus said, power shall come upon you in Jerusalem. Go back to the last thing you know for sure that God said. The last prophetic instruction. Listen. Go back there. Pause. Wait. I think the second thing that is important about this little verse is position yourself for God's visitation. You know, there's a delightful parable, Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. And you may know the parable, so forgive me for repeating it. But Jesus tells the story of ten virgins who've got lamps with oil or who need oil because their master is returning. Five of them ready themselves. They're on tippy toes. The master's coming. We want to be ready. It's going to be so incredibly excited. They fill their little lamps up with, with oil, ready for his return. Five say, oh, whatever. Whatever. Little apathy. What can little damage can a little bit of apathy have? Oh, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow. Well, when the master comes, five were wise virgins. Five were very foolish virgins. You're single. You're asking God for a spouse. What should you be doing? Well, I'm really selfish. I spend all my money on me. I always buy new clothes. I go to the, go online, get the coolest new stuff that I see. Uh, are you readying yourself for God's visitation to give you a spouse? Probably not. Well, yeah, I'm only in about 10 grand's debt. I, I can kill that in six months. Maybe one of them foolish virgins with an empty lamp. Maybe there's a posture of readiness that I'm going to get my life ready for what God has coming to me. You just don't know when he comes and you just don't know how he will come. Think for a moment of these apostles. Think for a moment that they were to be scattered around the world. How many of you know, Peter was married, we don't know about the others. How many of you know your marriage had better be good? Because when we put up our hand for an X-factor adventure, we have to have our posture ready for when God says, go, go now. Oh, so sorry, sorry, we can't, we can't, we, we've got, do you hear what I'm saying? Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. It was the prophetic instruction that required them to position themselves. Something is coming. I have to get myself ready. And maybe that's true for some of you. Maybe that's exactly where you are. Point number two, verse 14a. It says they were all, they all joined together. Now I remember when Dana preached you in the Philippian series, she referenced an article that the University of Portland put out about to foreign students. And I asked her to send me the article, as you have, some of you anyway. And um, I want to read from the article. Now remember, the, this is the quote, all joined together. What are we in, in between times? Highly vulnerable, highly uncertain, full of anxiety, full of uh, the kind of crystal sense of, I, I, I just don't know what is going on. And this article to prepare foreign students to come to America says, and I quote, the most important thing to understand about U.S. Americans, this is not a Christian university, but it is important. The most important thing to understand about U.S. Americans, I don't know why they say that, is probably their devotion to individualism. They have been trained from early in their lives to consider themselves separate individuals who are responsible, can I add in only, who are responsible for their own situations in life and their own destinies. They have not been trained to see themselves as members of a close-knit, tightly, tightly interdependent family, religious group, tribe, nation, or other group. Coming from Africa, amen. Shocked when we first came here at how rampant individualism, to quote the Canadian philosopher, is prevalent in America. Now, what these guys are calling us to, they all join together 
is completely contrary to what most of you have grown up in. This is the upside down kingdom, dear friends. This is the completely opposite. And yet this is this allness is a beautiful picture of this fledgling community. The challenge of their situation drew them together deeply as a priority. Uh, while I've been tidying at home or cooking, I've rewatched Band of Brothers, you know, the, uh, the TV series. And it's so interesting getting commentary from those who made the war, Captain uh, Major Dick Winters being one of them. And every one of them said the thing that happened to us They would get all teary remembering those who were killed, but we were drawn together in a closely knit unity, a brotherhood that's lasted at that stage around 40, 50 years. That is so contrary to this. But here is this beautiful picture of a church, this fledgling community that the challenge drew them together. They looked at each other. What do we do now? No leader. No one appointed Peter. They looked at each other and said, what do we do now? Mary, what should we do? James, what should Peter, John, John, hey, John, you are the guy they said that Jesus loved the most. <coughs> what should we do? We go back to Jerusalem and we all join together. The ESV, and I think it's on the screen behind me, <coughs> said all these were in one accord. Same verse. The Amplified says, all these were of one mind and one purpose. Thanks, my babe. And then the message, good old Eugene Peterson, they agreed they were in this for good. They were in this for good. They were in this forever. We are in this thing together. Forever. Sounds like a song. <laughs> completely together. You know, a quick story and then Wendy will come up. I had the privilege in the previous church we led, Southlands in Brea. We led that for 14 years. There was a beautiful brother who was on team with us. Now remember, I'm from South Africa, so I'm going to intentionally reference his ethnicity because of the complexity of our world in South Africa. And George was a beautiful man. I asked God when I moved here, I said, Lord, I really would love to have a big black friend. I hope that doesn't offend you. That's just my story. And George was that. Ex-football player, beast of a man. Big, strong, gentle. Arguably one of our best pastors. Many stories I could tell about George, but the one I want to tell tonight is the most significant. Pause there for a moment. Five weeks ago, we were in South Africa at a church that's just been built of 3,000 people. And just outside the restroom, there's a whole series of posters with the values and virtues of that church. And the story I'm about to tell you, the quote, is up there in memory of George. Sufficient to say, he had four kids. Sophia, Camille, Mackenzie and miles. I won't tell you, bore you the whole story, but sufficient to say that he used to put into his kids, kiddos, no matter what happens, run to the church. No matter what happens. No matter, even if the church hurts you, run back to the church. Even if life circumstances are too hard, run to the church. Well, little did he know he was proclaiming what his family needed to do when he died suddenly of leukemia within three days. I had to fly back from South Africa. I was speaking at an event. and They told me George is gone. I was in absolute disbelief. I left a healthy man and three days later, well, they kept him alive till we got home. Never forget the night I had to sit with his kids. We did. I'll tell them daddy's not coming home. 12, 10, 8. And, and Miles was nine, was the eldest. Miles was a baby. We have to tell them, Daddy's not coming home. It's not something I want to do too often in my life. But I can tell you what happened. The community descended on them. And without us arranging one thing, one dad would come and say, 
I've got Sophia. She's going to be part of our family. Every game she plays, I will be at. Brendan said, I've got Camille. Every game Camille played at, Brendan was there. The community rallied around them. One of them became pregnant out of wedlock. And I went to visit her just after she miscarried the baby. Now, she's not even in our church anymore, but I drove up to Brea, walked into the room, and it was just jam-packed with people. I sat next, next to her, and I said, tell me what your baby was like, because she had to give birth, although the baby was dead, and she, or the baby died. She described this little baby with the community rallied around her. Ladies and gentlemen, they all joined together. I understand how traumatically difficult it is for you because you've had drilled into you from the time you were born. You are special. You are unique. Look after yourself. You, you know, you are the center of the universe. With one of Tion's class photos, did you want to say something? Yeah. I think what um, for me was the most significant thing about that run to the church was George passed, I think it was a Friday, and... Um, no, it was actually a Saturday. No, it was Friday. So Saturday, we were all at the house and whatever. And then Sunday, Priscilla had said to us, you know, I'm not going to come to church this Sunday. You know, it, it will just all, you know, be at home together. They woke up. She told the kids, we're not going to church. And Camille went to her mom oh, and she... said, she was seven. She went to her mom and she said, mom, dad always said, run to the church. We need to run to the church. That is the kingdom. That is the upside down kingdom. Can I speak with fatherly affection? How many of you have said something to this effect? I'm really in a bad place. I'm going to go off by myself. I will get myself fixed and then I will come back. And the enemy says, hallelujah. Gotcha. They all joined together. Who were they? Anxious, vulnerable, uncertain, people fearful, hovering in an upper room. They all joined together. Run to the church, to community, not a Sunday gathering. I really, I love these spaces, but that isn't a thing for me. It's a community who do life together, who stand together through thick and thin, who laugh together and who weep together. I went to watch two soccer games at Concordia University this week. Why, you might ask. Well, the daughter of one of the couples who were with us at Southlands was playing. See, community didn't end when I was no longer leading the church. It's community. It's relationship. It's how we roll. And I sat there on the sideline on my very best behavior. I wasn't on my best behavior when Tion or Dana played. I was then. The next day, I went back to Concordia because the son of one of my friends was playing for Biola against Concordia. Why? Because they all joined together. Because I want those kids to understand, run to community. That's the Bible way. Wendy, and then I will land us Thirdly, not only is it that in-between time, not only is it joined together, but it's communal prayer and it's, and it's power. Okay. We're good. A little wobbly, but we can do that. <laughs> All right, can you all hear me? There you go. Okay, so as Chris said, we're going to settle right here on the 14th verse. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers and sisters. We're going to land right here at devoting in one accord to prayer. This one accord isn't an isolated incident. It's an outcome of a state of reference fueled by what one believes. 
Between 1941 and 1945, Nazi Germany and its collaborators systematically murdered around six million Jews. That was about two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. Nazi Germany and its collaborators, ugh, that's a tough one to say, were of one mind and purpose as one accord. In the book of Exodus, we're told of a ruler rising in Egypt who feared the sons of Israel. He ordered those in his kingdom to afflict them brutally with slave labor and to kill all the sons that were born to them. Pharaoh and his kingdom agreed and completely acted together as one accord. In Luke's prior book, chapter 22, it's recorded that Judas, one of the original 12 close to Jesus, had Satan enter him, and he discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus. Judas and Satan were of one mind and purpose, and completely together with one accord. How is this one accord with this group different? In the Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were given accounts of Jesus' ministry. We hear of many who questioned and followed him, and his miracles multiplied. So did the crowds. These crowds came to see and hear, but only a dedicated few became his inner circle and watched and listened in a way that started a burning in their inner being. They observed Jesus drawing away to quiet places, praying as if communing with a trusted friend, but yet a high authority. They watched as these conversations became a sort of daily bread that sustained him through anything that would come his way. This inner circle heard, they listened, and they burned, and they asked, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus taught them, Father, holy is your name. This prayer wasn't a showy, formaic way of earning, but it was an invitation, a way of learning. It invited them to approach God as Father, both in intimacy and in reverence. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This prayer invited an ordering of chaos, both in them and around them. Prayer directed their state of reference back to God, bringing about an usness. Ephesians 5, starting in 17, says, Understand what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the Spirit always, giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to our God and Father, submitting yourselves to one another with reverence in Christ. He was forming them one by one, and at the same time, reinstating in them a kingdom of one. Prayers, dispositioning them a useness, an usness, and desiring for holiness, turning their very being into an inner sanctuary, a traveling house of worship. Not a place of worship that people had to go to, but a house of prayer, a place of worship that would go to the people all people, all nations. These few witnessed a dependence in Jesus on God that ruled with both power and authority. Jesus' prayers expressed confidence and hope, but also abandonment and despair. They witnessed prayer become a humble posture to the point of sweating blood. Prayer was a place where personal outcome was abandoned, crosses were carried, and a kingdom will was upheld, even when death moved in and he anguished in pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Petition after petition, God the Father, Jesus the Son, Holy Spirit submitting to the other, and death moved in. 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They should have known, but they were still learning all questions to the Heavenly Father will be answered and sometimes are answered with a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was answered with, why do you look for the living among the dead? Forty days more they were with him after he rose from the dead. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. There were women there too, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers and sisters. When we can identify those who were there with him, we can see ourselves there as well. Some of them had walked away thinking they had been betrayed. Some felt they had betrayed him. There was a paralyzing grief, and some just had to get busy, back in the business of building their own kingdom. One by one, he began to show himself to them, affirming their connection and reinstating the kingdom's mind in them. What would have happened if Judas Iscariot, the 12th, would have been there as well? Matthew 28, 18 through 20 tells us, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus was taken into heaven before their very eyes. And these, those that followed him, they listened and waited for the promise. We pick up the story here in Acts 12. It says, from the mount called Olivet, they made a Sabbath day journey. They went up to the upper room and all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers and sisters. Prayer was the posture which both accepted the relational invitation and testified to their devotion. Prayer together, they became one. Prayer is the testimony and the unique gift of a Christ-centered community. One mind, one passion, one accord. In one accord gives us this beautiful imagery of a concert master blending instruments, each different, harmonizing in pitch and tone. The great conductor, Holy Spirit, is master blending those who are Christ to form the church with one accord. Acts 2.46 says, with gladness and singleness of heart. Acts 4.24 says, with voices to God. Acts 8.6 says, we give attention, we see, and we hear. In all of scripture, God has been telling us what possesses us, possesses the dominion and rule around us. Prayer takes us back to the place where the love of God inhabits all of me, inhabits all of us. After God rescues the sons of Israel from Pharaoh's kingdom of slavery, he speaks to them, encouraging them to be of one accord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. So you, meaning all of Israel, Inviting in all of us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's in Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7. This one accord leads to prayer. Talking to the one who is with us. Prayer, this talking to the one who is with us, leads us to this one accord. One accord in prayer is where we take hold of his will and in his power and authority join our prayers to those of the past, holding up the ones of the future, 
and taking them into our day as they embody us, with me, God, and others. It's a place where his kingdom comes as it is in heaven. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, starting in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father, as he remains in me, does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he, she, we will do also. Because I am going to the Father, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper so that he may be with you forever. The helper is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Romans 8.26 says, We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordsless groans, and he searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Prayer to God is our state of reference, fueled by what we believe. And this with one accord, these with one accord, us with one accord, devoted themselves to prayer. So I finish with this from Romans 15, 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one purpose and one voice you, me, us may glorify the God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wins has kept the flame of prayer in our community going. In fact, Paul said, you know, in Timothy, he said, first of all, pray. Uh, if, we, if we take that to be a biblical matrix of healthy community, I think many a church would be sadly lacking because prayer is not a first priority nor a major precedent. Okay, so what have we done? We've looked, number one, return to Jerusalem. Go back to where God first spoke and wait. He'll speak again. Secondly, they all join together. The idea of run to the church, run to community. I hope that story sticks in all of you. And then thirdly, the case of constantly in prayer, a community. Next year, we are going to give some very specific times to praying together. Folks, I don't know how many of you have been affected by the Hamas attack on Israel. I'm not taking political sides here. But war is a trauma. Children have been killed. Grannies and grandpas taken hostage. The retaliation by Israel is expected. I wonder who's praying. Lastly, the fourth high point in this incredible passage of Scripture for me is that verse, where did I put my glasses? Oh, right here. <laughs> it's that time of life, man. Don't laugh at me. You come in my way, baby. You come in my way. <laughs> I've left you, but you come in my way. All right, number four, verses 15 to 26. There's this little verse right there. May another take their place. A quick little prophetic commentary, a couple of points, and we will land around the table. We'll do it a little different tonight. I think God's got some change in the winds for us as a community. It's not impossible that we'll be stepping into a morning gathering as well. If we do, we're going to have to double up. 
We're gonna have to have a mirror of ourselves if we're hearing God. And so what this does is that there is this high call in a time of vulnerability and uncertainty, not for passivity or distance or fear. Some of you, please hear me. In Isaiah 60, you know, you know I mean, and I've told the story many times of going into John Mark's office for the first time, and there was a whole wall of a three-year preaching plan. And I'm like, John Mark, I can't plan three weeks, never mind three years. Most of what's happened in our life is this passage in Isaiah 60:22. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. Are we ready, dear, wonderful Genesis community? Can I sidebar it? I was so proud at the wedding yesterday. I, I, I didn't officiate. Caleb and Sam did a phenomenal job. Phenomenal job. And then afterwards, I love it when our community dominates the dance floor. I, it's one of my favorite things to watch that moment happen where uh, Jonah was playing the music and everyone just went, Crazy! I've never seen as many women barefooted in my life. And I'm not talking about at the beach. Anyway, that's not going to change your life. So what do we have here? This is a highly potent moment. In their vulnerability and uncertainty, they step forward into a posture of readiness for leadership. Again, excuse the Band of Brothers, Battlefield Promotion. If you watched it, and if you haven't, you know, however, that in a combat situation, it's not strange for a junior rank to have to be promoted in battle to a senior rank. A sergeant has to become a lieutenant. A lieutenant has to become a captain. That's how they trained us in the South African army. You always train to a position higher than the one you will hold. Why? Because who knows what the battlefield will do. If I died tomorrow, and with a heart issue, I might. Are we ready? Are we ready not for someone just to fill my shoes, but to multiply the ministry called Genesis? I see these four things quickly. One, may another take his place in leadership. Number one, Peter quotes the Bible. And I want to implore that we consistently take ourselves back to the wonder of Scripture. Scripture has it. It lays it out. This is not a seminary moment. This is not. They didn't have time. They didn't even know what they believed. Some doubted, we know from Matthew 28. They had no leadership protocol. It wasn't, well, go and do three years. Then you do your master's at Talbot. Oh, then you'll be ready to lead a church. Oh, by the way, Jesus has just died. Your assignment starts in 40 days. And oh, by the way, you're going to change the world. Here, 120 of you are going to change the world. Are you ready? You're about their age. So what happened? Peter pulls out the text and he places the text on the table as the qualification. Not a piece of paper, not a character gift. I mean, not a, um, a personality or charisma or power or, or, you know, you can spin a yarn or make people laugh. No, this is the Bible offers the matrix around which leadership qualification takes place. When I look for leadership, I look to see who cares, who is prepared to lay their life down for this little bride called Genesis. Because the Bible says that Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays his life down for his sheep. People come here sometimes and they've got all their credentials. Well, I went to Biola and then I went to seminary and I'm kind of ready for a job, they hint. And I want to say, buddy, put your butt in that chair. I want to see you serve for two years. Every Sunday you here packing up the chairs, sweeping the floors, and then you might be ready. Not before. Not interested in paper. I'm interested in the heart. Because the second thing they say is we're looking for someone who's been with Jesus. You know, when I was a five-year-old, six-year-old boy, my dad was a construction worker. And there were times he would go off for a week or two or three and we wouldn't see him. And for a little five-year-old, six-year-old boy, that was a big thing. So I would go into the laundry basket and pull one of his shirts out. Now, my dad was a construction worker. He was not a number cruncher. He didn't sit in a, with a suit. His shirts 
stank. And then I would grab one of his shirts and I would put on my pillow at night and I would lie there because I wanted to smell like my dad. I wanted to smell my dad. And what Peter was saying is we need to know know those who've been with Jesus who carry his perfume. That when you are with them, you are smudged, overladen by the perfume of that woman who took the perfume a year's wage and poured it all over him. And Paul says, you will have his perfume. That's who we're looking for. Who's got the smell of Jesus? That when you're with them, it's like, oh, you know, I don't know why, but every time we have coffee, I love Jesus more. Yeah, of course you do. Because the affection of Christ for his church resides inside of that leader. And you know they've been with Jesus. Thirdly, not only is it a biblical qualification or a being with Jesus, but thirdly, it's from being amongst them. uh, Peter says it here. uh, Let's see if I can find it quickly. Um, Oh, I didn't highlight it enough. Oh, here we go. He was one of our number. This idea, dear friends, of leadership coming from within. It's a beautiful image. Do you know what is the one of the top three? I don't want to be crass. No, I'm thinking of another non-crass word. Give me one, any word. <laughs> one of the big screw-ups of the American church, or the church worldwide, is that we go and we hire from the outside. I had a call from a church planter this week. And if you know, that's part of what I do is working the church plant. And he says, Chris, we've planted the church. It's going well. I've got this engineering business. And, and so I've handed over to a guy. So I said, oh, well, that's very interesting. Who have you handed over to? Well, it's a guy who got fired from his previous job. Now, instantly I'm sitting forward in my Zoom call, tapping my fingers. Oh, I said, why was he fired? Well, he was a maverick. He did his own thing. He never played team. Okay, so you hired a guy who is a loner. Ten minutes into the conversation, he says to me, man, he says, I'm finding it really difficult working with this guy. I thought, should I finish the sentence? But I didn't. I was humble. I said, so why? This guy is such a loner. He is such a maverick. He does his own thing. And then I have this pregnant moment in the conversation. Do I just smile or do I say something? What I wanted to say is fire his butt. What I did say is, why don't you have a conversation with him and suggest that's not the best way to lead a church? Peter said, the Bible gives us guidelines. There's no protocol that they've, dis- that they've found yet. Secondly, that they smell like Jesus. Thirdly, that they are from within the community. Are there exceptions to that? Chris, of course they are. There are times we have to hire in. Interesting, I chuckled to myself this afternoon. The only two occasions in 40 years of ministry I hired in from the outside. One sued me and one basically turned a whole group of people against me. Guess what I learned? You don't hire in from the outside. Preacher, listen to thy own preaching. Peter says we've got to find someone from among our number. Fourthly, The two ways we see who qualifies. Peter prays and says, Lord, you know their heart. And you know what that looks like? I'm flying a little bit, so it's not in the same order here. It's by, and I want you to listen very carefully, dear Genesis people. Because it's by observation and by revelation. In other words, the next leaders, we want to bring two more couples or individuals on at least by Easter. If, we, if what God is going to do with us as a community, we need an eldership team, double its current size. A table community leaders, double its current size. Worship leaders, double its current size. If we're hearing God right. What on earth was I going to say now? I was so passionate that I lost my, my way. Oh yes, thank you, my love. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
Please know that it's not just by observation. I'm very interested when I sidle up to someone, we're having coffee together, and I, I drop it in quietly, they don't know. And I want to get who they see the next leaders are. And I'm amazed how often they're wrong. Because the only matrix they use of the two is observation. They rarely use revelation. Peter prays and he says, oh Lord, you know their hearts. We need revelation to see what God doesn't tell. Let me tell you about Lois. Lois I brought onto team in South Africa and so many of the people freaked out. He's a French Mauritian man, highly eccentric. He's now got his PhD working with prisoners in Canada. When we brought Lois on, there was an incredible amount of criticism. He had his own company. He was a chartered accountant, busy man. But you know what Lois would do that people didn't know is on a Thursday night, now again, we're talking South Africa and many of the wealthier homes had maids, live-in maids that cared for the people, cooked the food and whatever. But Thursday night, how kind, they had the night off. And Lois would take his Mercedes and go and pick up these maids, drop them off and then pick up more. And he would spend two hours teaching them. He is a chartered accountant with his own company, with a big house and a fancy Mercedes. And he would pick these people up and most didn't know that. And when we said, Lois is the guy, people said, what are you saying? Well, let me tell you that what you do every Thursday night, what you're watching next Netflix, let me tell you what he's doing. Telling no one, but I knew, of course, leading the church. There is an observation and a revelation in the choosing. And what Peter did is let's ask God to reveal hearts. I love these moments with the community and I am landing. Because there's so much weighted gifting and calling in this room. But I preach passionately sometimes, dear friends, because I know the choices you have to make to get where God wants you to be. I know the decisions you have to make. I know the positioning yourself with the perfume of Jesus across your face while others are out there at the breweries and there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. But you are making choices that no one sees to get the perfume of Jesus soaking and saturating your inner soul. Using the scripture as your matrix, looking for those who've been with Jesus, understanding the necessity. What's my third point, baby? Those from among us, thank you. And then revelation and observation, praying. There's a couple who are here tonight that I think are going to come on to leadership very soon. And if I mention them tonight, every one of you will, jaw will drop, thinking, I don't know what on earth you're thinking about. position your hearts and allow God to position you for this great kingdom adventure.